0: On Monday, October 23rd, 1933, the courts of Sioux City, Iowa were packed to the brim. Reporters and civilians stood elbow to elbow as the room bristled with energy. The streets outside were similarly packed. Every eye was on the road. Suddenly, excited murmurs spread through the crowds. A car pulled up to the steps of the courthouse. People swelled forward, craning their necks to catch a glimpse of the tall, dapper gentleman exiting the vehicle. He was devilishly handsome and spry, even at 57 years old. He smiled graciously at his ardent supporters as they screamed his name. Inside the courthouse, the judge struggled to maintain order. The prosecution inspected the mob with concern. The gentleman was accused of stealing hundreds of thousands from impoverished farmers. Many of those were currently sitting in the room, shouting in favor of the defendant. If they couldn't see how he had cheated them, how could the prosecutor convince a jury of his peers? Finally, the room grew quiet. Oscar Merrill Hartzell stood as the long list of charges against him were read aloud. But despite the accusations... Hartzell only grinned. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology break down their tricks and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of con artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to stream con artists for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type con artists in the search bar at podcast. We're grateful for you. Our listeners, you allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we met Oscar Hartzell, a failed Midwestern farmer. His desperation for wealth and success made him the perfect mark and recruiter for the Francis Drake inheritance scam, a con run by Sudie Whitaker and Milo Lewis. After realizing the whole enterprise was a sham, Hartzell plotted to take over the operation himself. This week, we'll learn how Hartzell expanded the Khan's reach while living in London. We'll come to understand how he managed to increase his donations during the Great Depression and the circumstances that finally led to his arrest. In 1922, after months of planning and plotting, the 46-year-old Oscar Hartzell had finally taken control of the Francis Drake inheritance scam. The con itself was based on one easy lie. The massive fortune of Sir Francis Drake was bestowed upon the wrong heir, and all his money was up for grabs by whoever could legally prove it belonged to them. In the scheme's previous iteration, run by Sudi Whitaker and the lawyer Milo Lewis, Marks were invited to buy shares, which were sold with the promise of a huge return. But when Lewis was disbarred, Hartzell took control of the operation and won over all of Whittaker's and Lewis's loyal followers. With Hartzell in charge, the con looks slightly different. Instead of selling shares, Hartzell only accepted donations which covered his tracks legally and prevented him from going down the same path as his predecessors. He also made the Drake fortune feel more tangible by putting himself at the centre of it. Whittaker and Lewis sold the whole con by pretending that the heir was Whitaker's fictitious cousin, George Drake. In the eyes of their donors, this connection gave Whittaker a tangible reason for getting involved with the estate. It also meant that the money would go to someone who was close at hand. Once Hartzell disavowed his partners, however, he could no longer use George Drake as the fake heir. So he and his lover, E.A. Broadburn, came up with a new successor, Colonel Drexel Drake. They claimed to have discovered the Colonel after painstakingly searching for Drake's lost secret will and tracing the genealogy of his real heirs. But, like Whitaker, Hartzell had to come up with a connection to this heir to explain his involvement in the Drake estate. So, he created an imaginary niece for the colonel and told his followers that they were engaged. Because this family connection was so intimate, Hartzell was able to tell one last crucial lie. He claimed that the colonel had signed away all the rights of the estate to him so that when the inheritance finally did come through, Hartzell would legally be recognized as the sole heir. This gave Hartzell greater importance in the eyes of his investors. Now, he wasn't just in charge of facilitating and securing the estate, he was the beneficiary as well, and with this added importance, Hartzell gained more control over his donors thanks to a psychological phenomenon called the deference to authority principle. This principle states that people who appear to have some sense of authority are given more deference and listened to by others, regardless of whether or not what they are saying is correct. Figures of authority are also more likely to get away with lies because they are implicitly trusted. This principle applies to figures of real authority such as government officials and politicians or those with presumed authority, such as the leaders of a company or simply a rich aristocrat. The combined effect of these new lies led to a huge increase in Hartzell's donations. Hartzell's records showed that in April of 1924 he received $2,250, or $33,000 in today's money, from donors and investors. A little over a year later, in July of 1925, that number jumped to over $7,000, or $103,000 today. And with each donation, Hartzell's lifestyle grew more glamorous. He bought the best designer clothing, dined at the luxurious Savoy Hotel and invested in expensive real estate all over the city. Whenever he could spare a moment in his busy schedule, Hartzell wrote progress reports to his donors in America. For the first few years, he assured people that his lawyers were hard at work calculating the full amount of the inheritance. Converting Francis Drake's holdings into dollar amounts and calculating the compound interest took time, as Hartzell explained. A majority of his investors bought the lie and were happy to continue sending money. But not everyone. At the beginning of 1925, Alma Shepard, one of Hartzell's earliest supporters and sales agents, started growing suspicious. She was no longer satisfied by Hartzell's evasive explanations, so she hired a private investigator to follow him around London. Unfortunately, the detective's reports were inconclusive. He told Alma that Hartzell spent his days in luxury, conducting business in London's most exclusive buildings and hosting luxurious dinners but he couldn't disprove Hartzell's reports. So Alma decided to go poking around herself. Her view on the situation was far more clear. She saw that Hartzell was spending money hand over fist, far more than he should be. Either he was dipping into the donations that were being sent to him from America, or even worse, he'd already received the Drake inheritance and was hoarding all the money for himself. Whatever the case, Alma instantly realized that Hartzell had conned them. Alma confronted Hartzell with her evidence, demanding to meet Colonel Drake and to see proof of the Drake estate's existence. The direct questioning caught Hartzell off guard. He tried to maintain his cover by explaining that the Colonel was particular and would only meet with him. In addition... The estate's documents were highly classified. Showing them to her was out of the question. But Alma was through with his vague answers and nebulous promises. She returned to Iowa in a fury, denouncing Hartzell and calling out his behavior. But to her surprise, the investors flocked to Hartzell's defense. The situation quickly grew tense. Feeling betrayed by their reactions, Alma ran two of Hartzell's most loyal followers out of Des Moines. The resulting scandal made it all the way back to Hartzell in London. Hartzell knew he had to act fast. He realized Alma had the ammunition and the evidence to take him down. If he didn't destroy her now, he was as good as finished. Hartzell wrote an angry letter to his other partners in Iowa and told them to circulate it to his donors. In the letter, he firmly denied all of Alma Shepard's allegations. Moreover, he described his anger with her treatment of his loyal followers vividly and promised that they would be fully compensated for the trouble that Alma put them through. Then, once he defended both himself and his investors, Hartzell turned the tables onto Alma herself. He accused her of skimming $75,000 off the $166,775 that she'd collected for Hartzell's mission. This, of course, was part of the deal that Hartzell and Alma struck when she first started working for him. But Hartzell failed to mention this as he raged against Shepard and her husband. When Hartzell's other agents checked Alma's books, they confirmed that money was missing. Not in the amounts that Hartzell was claiming, but enough to turn the tide against Alma. Using this evidence as proof of his righteousness, Hartzell told all his investors that they had to choose sides, him or Alma. The investors didn't hesitate to side with Hartzell. Alma's reputation was ruined. Her husband, a merchant tailor, could no longer find work, and the despair and disgrace ended up being too much for him. Within the year, he ended up in the Iowa State Asylum and died soon afterwards. Alma lost everything, simply for trying to show people the truth about Hartzell. But the con man's brutality was necessary as he expanded his donor base and reached deeper into their pockets. Hartzell needed absolute loyalty to prevent others from questioning his lack of progress. And sure enough, by 1926, Hartzell's donations came in stronger than ever. People's belief in the Francis Drake estate had only gotten stronger. But every action has its equal and opposite reaction. And as Hartzell grew more popular in the Midwest, authorities started paying more attention to Hartzell's little scheme. It was only a matter of time before they took action. Coming up next, Hartzell weathers the growing interest of the United States federal government, as well as the Great Depression. Now, back to the story. In June of 1926, 50-year-old Oscar Hartzell was living large in London, funded by the hard-earned donations of hopeful Midwest American farmers. His followers had only increased after his former partner, Alma Shepard, tried and failed to expose Hartzell for the con artist he was. And Hartzell's confidence also increased after this failed coup. He believed he was untouchable. By this point Hartzell had been running the con for four years and for the majority of that time he told his donors that the Drake estate was delayed because the inheritance was still being calculated. But that excuse was wearing thin. And even though he'd managed to re-establish people's loyalty, Hartzell didn't want to test the limits of their belief quite yet. So he came up with new excuses. In June of 1926, he wrote to his sales agents in Iowa claiming that he was now working with the King of England to settle the inheritance. Unfortunately, the King had become sick, so the payout was once again delayed, and Hartzell needed more money in order to facilitate things along. The Midwest sent him another $6,000 by July, or $87,000 in today's money. In November of 1927, Hartzell assured his followers that he had secured the settlement, but that it had been delayed by a month. And in June of 1928, when Hartzell was 52 years old, he wrote that a miscalculation would result in yet another delay. Psychiatrists would later diagnose Hartzell with below-average intelligence, which may have been why he chose a life of crime to begin with. A study published in the academic journal Society, Health and Vulnerability in 2012 states that there may be a correlation between low IQ and choosing to commit a crime, and people of lower intelligence make up a disproportionately large percentage of the prison population. A number of factors may be responsible for this relationship. People who fall under this category may find themselves with fewer opportunities in non-criminal sectors, where intelligence is highly valued. Likewise, criminals with lower intelligence may be more likely to make mistakes when committing crimes and therefore get caught. Despite Hartzell's low IQ, he seemed to develop an endless source of creativity and problem-solving skills as soon as he took over the Francis Drake inheritance scheme. For example, to quell any lasting rumours that Hartzell was a fraud, the conman made up a detective from Scotland Yard. This detective was supposedly a friend of the nephew of a British man living in Iowa, another of Hartzell's accomplices. The detective wrote to his uncle, praising Hartzell for all his hard work on behalf of his donors and assuring him that the Drake estate was real. These letters were designed to be circulated among Hartzell's followers, and his donors took the detective's words at face value. Hartzell also began scanning the headlines, using any news between Britain and the US as fodder for his lies. When King George's illness put him on bed rest, Hartzell wrote that he was sick because of the Francis Drake estate and the massive strain it would cause on the British economy. When the American ambassador to London was called back to Washington, Hartzell claimed they were discussing the Drake estate. And when England was rumoured to come off the gold standard in the late 1920s, Hartzell told his followers that the country was preparing for a mass exodus of cash. Francis Drake's estate grew larger with each lie that Hartzell told. When he first took over, the estimated total figure hovered around $10 billion. But slowly, Hartzell inflated that number until he reached $100 billion. These claims sounded unbelievable. But it wasn't as uncommon for Americans to become millionaires overnight in the 1920s. Investing in the stock market led to hefty returns, and the Florida land boom transformed lowly farmers into wealthy businessmen in no time. Because of these real-life examples, Hartzell's followers bought every single word, and their numbers swelled in response. At his peak, Hartzell had somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000 donors following his every move. These investors were loyal to Hartzell, but not just because he promised them wealth and fortune. They were also highly suspicious of Wall Street and the more traditional big banks, believing that they were corrupt. The growing income gap between financiers and farmers was largely responsible for this because of this many of Hartzell's followers put their faith in him instead of the stock market they had a similar attitude towards the British government in their minds all of the wealthy elite in the world were the same for this reason they delighted in the image of Hartzell a cowboy outsmarting the English upper class they relished him figuring out what the elite never could. How to disentangle the Francis Drake estate and claim the large inheritance on their behalf. Of course, in reality, Hartzell was doing quite the opposite. In London, he fashioned himself as a Texas millionaire and delighted in rubbing elbows with the fabulous and wealthy. His relationship with his former partner, E.A. Broadburn, fizzled out. But in her place, he managed to find lots of women in the upper class to keep him company. He also went out of his way to dress, act and behave like one of them. And thanks to his increasing donations, he was able to do so easily. Hartzell even started calling himself Baron Buckland to better fit in amongst his new peers. If his donors had seen him in this state, they might have reconsidered their loyalties. But Hartzell remained in London for a reason. The distance gave him the freedom to do as he pleased, so long as he told people what they wanted to hear. Hartzell's residence in London ended up being advantageous in another way. Up until this point, the American authorities hadn't paid much attention to Hartzell or his fundraising. The Iowa Securities Commission had known that Hartzell was a fraud since they first brought his former partner, Sudie Whittaker, to trial in 1915. But whenever they tried to take action against Hartzell, it quickly died out. Nobody could figure out how to prosecute him. Hartzell was collecting money in America, which fell under the jurisdiction of the federal government. But they had no authority over London, where he lived. When they tried passing the case along to the British government, they were told that the UK could do nothing about Hartzell. He had wisely limited his fundraising to the states and had therefore committed no crimes on British soil. But by 1928, the Hartzell fever had gotten so bad that the authorities could no longer look away. Thousands of dollars were being sent to him every month and in some parts of Iowa, Hartzell's scam was becoming so popular that it was dividing towns. Those who believed were furiously pitted against those who didn't and tensions were growing thick. So, in 1928, Ed M. Smith, the Secretary of State for Iowa, decided to do something about it he circulated a letter that he'd received from the British Consul in Chicago, which stated that there was not, and had never been, an unclaimed Francis Drake estate. Furthermore, the letter stated that all activity related to the Drake inheritance in the United States should be treated as fraudulent, and that Oscar Hartzell himself was a fake. Smith published the letter in every major Iowa newspaper, Then, to put a definitive stop to Hartzell's activities, he drafted a new bill for the Iowa State Legislature. The bill required a permit for anyone soliciting certain kinds of donations, such as those Hartzell was asking for, and gave the legislature permission to refuse anyone whose scheme seemed fraudulent. In other words, the bill would put an end to Hartzell's revenue stream once and for all. Just like with Alma Shepard, Hartzell went on the offensive. A wiser man might have kept his temper in check, but by now, Hartzell realized something incredibly important. Facts didn't matter to his donors. They were ready to believe whoever was loudest, not the most correct. So he threw a tantrum. He wrote directly to Ed M. Smith, calling him a fool for trying to intimidate his followers and telling him to talk to Washington. The federal government would set the record straight. This wasn't the case, of course, but when the letter made its way to Hartzell's followers, they instantly put their faith in their leader. Overnight, Ed Smith's office was bombarded with letters from his constituents protesting the bill. When the legislature finally voted on the bill, it was resoundingly defeated. And Ed Smith, humiliated and disgraced by the experience, left public office soon afterward. Hartzell revelled in his victory as more donations kept flooding in, but the euphoria was short-lived. Less than a year later, the stock market crashed in October of 1929. It was the worst major financial crisis that the United States ever experienced. And many people lost everything. Disposable income all but disappeared, and both farmers and bankers were forced to tighten their bootstraps. This turn of events was a direct threat to Hartzell's income. He relied on the donations of farmers who had now lost everything. And if they decided to cut him off, he would be forced to count himself among the newly destitute. But Hartzell remained in control of the situation. In the wake of the stock market crash, he wrote letters to his followers, encouraging them to continue placing their hopes in him. Hartzell also implied that the crash was caused by the American and British government's concerns over the Drake fortune. The amount was so large, according to Hartzell's claims, that it threatened to destabilise the entire global economy. Hartzell's assurances worked exactly as he hoped they would. His followers were emboldened, believing that the Drake fortune was within reach. And once they received their shares, they would be lifted out of poverty forever. Their desperation was so great that despite the financial crisis, Hartzell's followers became fanatics in their belief. They mortgaged their farms and scraped together every last penny, putting everything they had into Hartzell's hands. So, while the rest of the country languished, Hartzell's donations actually increased. In November 1929, the 53-year-old Hartzell received $6,000 from the states. The following month, that figure jumped to $9,000, or $135,000 in today's money. Hartzell's confidence was at an all-time high. He had managed to keep his con going despite a financial crisis and the attempted interference of politicians. He believed that he was untouchable. Hartzell didn't realize both the British and American governments were onto him. With the financial crisis, Hartzell was a more and more dangerous figure who posed a threat to the entire Midwest. And they were determined to take him down no matter what. Coming up next, Hartzell's scheme finally comes crumbling down. Now, back to the story. In 1930, 54-year-old Oscar Hartzell was in the prime of his life. He was one of the few Americans who had managed to survive the Wall Street market crash of 1929 and actually come out ahead. While the rest of his country struggled to afford basic necessities, Hartzell moved into a new apartment in one of the wealthiest parts of London. He even hired a servant. With each win, however, Hartzell grew more confident and arrogant. This can be a common psychological phenomenon, according to Phyllis Greenacre, a psychoanalyst who specialised in development and psychoanalytic training. She claimed that the imposter becomes temporarily convinced of the rightness of his assumed character in proportion to the amount of attention he is able to gain from it. In the context of Hartzell's life, he had spent so long playing the rich, untouchable American living abroad that he began fully believing in this image of himself. As a result, he started letting his guard down. Hartzell had always been lavish with his money, but now he was being downright brazen about his spending, both with old friends and new. In the early 1930s, Scotland Yard received two notices about Hartzell's strange behaviour and his never-ending income, despite not having a real job. On top of this, Hartzell made one grave error. After a nearly fatal car crash Hartzell started seeing a psychic with the hope of warding off any other potential accidents. She in turn hired a private detective so that she could discover as much about her new client as she could. The man tailed Hartzell for several weeks noting his habits and his spending patterns. Then one night the private eye approached Hartzell warmly and offered to buy him a drink. The two spent the entire evening drinking, which allowed the detective to ask him questions and get real answers for his troubles. He hoped to get some juicy tidbits for his boss, but Hartzell went beyond even this. He admitted that the whole Drake estate was a con, as well as how it operated. The detective took everything else to the psychic, but held on to this particular piece of information. The next day, Hartzell couldn't even remember telling the detective about the scam. Hartzell's continued success in the face of the Great Depression was seen as especially egregious by the authorities. Since the stock market crash, most fraudulent cases fell apart because people stopped donating to them. The Drake inheritance scam was one of the few left standing. But since Ed Smith's failed attempt to take Hartzell down, no one in either the British or American governments had figured out a way to successfully convict him. It was hard enough to prove he was committing a crime, let alone how he was doing it. But one unlikely government employee realized that Hartzell was using a federal service as part of his scheme. John Sparks was a US Postal Service inspector. He was 10 years younger than Hartzell but had already gained a reputation for being honest, thorough and efficient. He was also uniquely positioned to put Hartzell away. Sparks realized that Hartzell's donations were sent to him via the United States Postal Service, courtesy of the agents he employed in Iowa. If the USPS could prove that those donations were solicited for any fraudulent reason, the United States might finally have the ammunition to put him away for good. So Sparks started looking for testimonies and evidence against Hartzell shortly after the 1929 crash. He first went to Hartzell's family and his ex-wife Daisy, but none of them would give up information. Then Sparks went to Hartzell's salespeople in Iowa. By 1930, Hartzell's ground operations had expanded quite a bit, and most of those people weren't willing to talk to Sparks. They all believed in the inheritance and couldn't be convinced otherwise. The loyalty that Hartzell commanded was impressive, but Sparks was still able to find a handful that were willing to testify. One of these was Hartzell's long-term bookkeeper, Otto Jant. Jant, as well as the other agents Sparks spoke to, were transparent about the con and how it operated, as well as their role within it. It's unclear why these people chose to speak out. It was possible that they'd grown tired of criminal activity, or maybe they just hoped to lessen their own punishments by cooperating with the government. By January of 1931, shortly after Hartzell's 55th birthday, Sparks had gathered enough evidence to take his collaborators to trial. In the courtroom, Sparks effectively proved that the whole thing was a con. The judge ordered them to stop soliciting and sending money to Hartzell. In addition, they were given fraud orders, so any letter that was sent to them would be returned, marked as fraud. This new development finally made an impact on Hartzell's following. Donations dropped off, and people's faith was finally shaken. Hartzell reacted to this betrayal much like he did with the others, by throwing a tantrum and brazenly lying about everything he accused sparks and the iowa government of persecution and told his investors to remain loyal if they wanted to see a penny of their money returned to them but his lies were getting harder and harder to track he had spent such a long time believing that his followers would eat up whatever he told them that he stopped wondering if his made-up facts were even remotely believable Hartzell wrote non-stop to his remaining supporters. He accused the press of lying and manipulating facts and reminded his donors that he would become the richest man in America as soon as he received the inheritance. In one especially desperate letter, he wrote, Give them hell. Stand your ground. Defy the officials. I am boss. Hartzell managed to hold on to the fragments of his con for two full years after the trial. But in that time, Sparks and the British government continued collecting information on him. Sparks had gotten Hartzell's collaborators to talk, but Scotland Yard had evidence that was even more valuable. Hartzell's first-hand testimony admitting the whole enterprise was a scam. They had tracked down the private detective who'd followed Hartzell on behalf of his psychic. This meant that they now had his confession from a direct witness. With that last piece of the puzzle, the American government had all the evidence they needed. They waited for Hartzell to be deported back to the United States. In the month before his official arrest, Chief Inspector Charles Wesley from Scotland Yard came to Hartzell's apartment and demanded to see evidence of the Drake inheritance. It was Hartzell's last chance to save himself and prove that he wasn't just a simple con artist. But Hartzell couldn't produce anything. He stumbled around the apartment, evading questions and trying desperately to escape the direct line of questioning. Throughout the entire interrogation, Hartzell continued ranting about the powers within the British government that would clear his name. He declared how everyone would be sorry when the estate paid out. Oscar Hartzell was arrested on January 9, 1933, just three days after his 57th birthday. He was deported back to the United States to face trial. Despite the collapse of the con, people continued believing in Hartzell. They showed up in droves during his trial, refusing to believe anything the prosecution had to say against him. In their eyes, Hartzell was a man of the people, one of the only powerful men who was still working for them. They had entirely lost faith in both the government and the banking system that dominated the Roaring Twenties. So... In an ironic twist, Hartzell's victims continued raising money for his defence while he was on trial for defrauding them. Luckily, justice prevailed. By the end of the trial, Hartzell was sentenced to 10 years in Leavenworth Penitentiary, as well as a $2,000 fine or $39,600 today. It was a small price compared to the thousands Hartzell had stolen over the years. Oscar Hartzell never again admitted that the Drake estate was a scam. And even while in prison, he was fully convinced that someone from on high would recognize his importance and intervene. He was a model prisoner, but psychoanalysts diagnosed him with lower than average intelligence and possible schizophrenia. In the end, it seemed he had begun believing his own lies. Hartzell died on August 27, 1943, after a long battle with throat cancer, just over a year before he was scheduled to be released. He was 67. But he continued believing until the end, as did his supporters, many of whom never fully accepted that Hartzell was a fraud. In many ways, Hartzell did give them something, hope, at a time when none seemed to exist. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Oscar Hartzell, among the many sources we used, we found Drake's Fortune, the fabulous true story of the world's greatest confidence artist by Richard Rayner, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkhouse Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Marler. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.